On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Commonwealth Games and Hamilton's bid in 2030. New details are about to come out. Is it going to help? What? How's it going to help? Is Hamilton the shoe-in now for 2030? We'll talk about that. We're also talking about wine because this has been a really weather-filled summer. Lots of heat, lots of heat, lots of rain. Is that going to help or hurt? local wine production and make it a great vintage or something else. And Don Robertson joins us as he does every Monday for the podcast. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Early this morning, before many of us were awake, uh, Lou Fraporti, the guy behind Hamilton's Commonwealth Games bid in 2030, was on Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin right here on 900 CHML. And he was pointing out that a new concept for Hamilton's bid in 2030, it will soon be released. And I don't want to put words in his mouth or misquote him, uh, but let me play a bit of what he had to say this morning when he was on with Rick. And I'll tell you, as the public will become aware um, quite soon, what it looks like now is quite dissimilar from what it looked like as we began the process and then began discussions around a potential 2026 bid. This new approach, which we're refining with all of those stakeholders um, we think is very innovative, quite different, makes significantly reduced demands on government at every level, has a much higher degree of engagement by the private sector, including in investments immediately. And we think it will be very compelling domestically and internationally. So that was Lou Fraporti, the guy who, as I say, is behind the Hamilton 2030, Hamilton 100 bid. I want to bring in Robert Livingston. He is a guy who is behind gamesbids.com. He's an expert on multi-sports games, Olympics, Pan Ams, Commonwealth, all those kinds of things. Robert, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Good evening. So listening to Lou, and we've had Lou on the station many, many, many times, and Rick had him on this morning. Um, is this as is what he describes the world in 2021 now in games bids, the, uh, except maybe when you're going for the Olympics, that the world of multi-sports games has simply just changed under our feet? Well, I mean, the world in general has, has changed over the That's last true. couple of years that we've seen. I mean, we're in a different province now than, than we were two years ago. So much has changed. So the idea that that um, they're shifting the focus from more of a private sector um, bid, more private sector investment as far in, in, as opposed to the province dishing in money, you know, makes total sense now. I mean, there's not a lot of money left in the province. So um, all the things he talked about, um, I think, are definitely a reaction to what's happened here in the last couple of years. And you just highlighted what I had as the biggest takeaway from that whole quote that he said, which was there's going to be fewer, much fewer, almost no demands, it sounds, on the public. Clearly around here in Hamilton, that is necessary. We've heard that from a lot of people that we don't want the local government spending a ton of money on this. But is that the same elsewhere? Um, or is there still an appetite for public spending on these things? Or are we just unique here that we don't want it? Uh, no, that's that's a trend overall. Um, I mean, it, there are, you know, with Commonwealth Games, there are just a lack of bidders. I mean, that's why there's an opportunity here for Hamilton. Um, you know, uh, 2026, they still haven't cited those games after Hamilton, you know, shifted to 2030. Um, you look at Pan Am Games, you look at the Olympic Games, you look at all of them. Um, cities don't want to spend the money. Uh, cities don't want to build venues. And that's what's happening is, is the organizations behind these things are saying, hey, we Let's not build new venues. Let's build uh, or let's host games where facilities exist, where we can get private investment and we can do these things without a burden on the taxpayer. That's what people want. If we want it then, if Hamilton, I say we, if Hamilton wants it, is it ours? Is 2030 Hamilton's games if we choose to have it or are there, are there other cities right now lining up for it? There, you know, it's it's a really, really tough thing to gauge because obviously there, there's no one stepping forward for 2026 at this point. Um, 2030, things might change. There are other cities interested. It's just 2026 is seen as, I think, a bit too early because of the pandemic, because there's some uncertainty here. Um, you know, jurisdictions, they don't know where they're going to be a year from now. They don't know what the recovery is going to look like. But by 2030, if you look at bidding, you know, two, three years down the road, that might be the opportunity where, where you know, places say hey you know let's restart let's restart our economy let's recover let's do this so you know there are places interested and i think they just need a little more time so 2030 might be a little busier of a of a, a landscape bid landscape than, than it was for 26 
There is a a website out there. You're probably aware of it. I'm, I'm assuming you would be. It's called Inside the Games. It's not yours, but nonetheless, um, they had a really interesting piece posted on there about the Commonwealth Games um, back from June. So it's been there for a little while. And essentially it says that the Commonwealth Games are never going to be the same after the Birmingham 2022 Games. And it goes into great detail, but the biggest issue is these games, the Commonwealth Games, must get smaller. They can't try and be the all things to all people games they've tried to be in the past. You agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, definitely. I'm, I'm I'm familiar with the piece that you're mentioning. I did read it. It's it's um, yeah. I mean, it's true. Um, it, we're seeing that, like I mentioned, even with the Olympic Games, they're trying to scale back. You know, the biggest event in the world, and they're saying, "Hey, we're too big. We got to limit the athletes." Certainly for regional games uh, where there's less of a budget for it, there's less athletes, and, and to be honest, less interest around the world, um, you can't keep growing. I mean, we've seen it hit its capacity, all of these events. Um, it will have to get smaller. Um, you know, it, it, 2026 is, is at risk. Um, there may not be a game. It's possible that either they could be shifted to another year or the Commonwealth Games Federation just gives up and says, okay, we'll just have 2030 instead. I don't know what's going to happen with that. So, you know, when you lose the games or are at risk of losing the games completely, you've you got to understand that there's something wrong and something has to change. It, it sounds like Hamilton's bid in large measure is, is not even really a, I mean, it is about sports, obviously. I'm not saying there's no sports involved. It clearly is, but this is a community building effort almost first and foremost, built around a games. Is that the common play now for a lot of these cities that we're going to have games because that gets the door open to us, but this is going to be for the bigger good, the greater good of the community? I don't think that's a new concept. It's a, it's a concept that has been around um, uh, where a city, you know, um, bids and hosts the games for that overall goal, goal of, of uh, you know, creating new infrastructure, creating things that the city already wants. I mean, the shift is kind of moving away from that as, you know, uh, places don't want infrastructure projects connected to the games because they're seen as more risk there. Um, but looking at what Hamilton's doing, uh, or at least what their, the bid group is proposing, I mean, it kind of makes sense if, if, if these things need to be done um, and there's 10 years to do them, um, there's an opportunity to host the games. If you can build a story around it and, and have the private sector invest, you know, maybe it'll work. Yeah. And, and I look, you're absolutely right. Uh, of course you are. You're absolutely right that this is not something that is brand new about building the community. The difference, I guess, is, you know, I look back to say the Rio Olympics and they talked about how we're going to build the infrastructure. And what that meant is we're going to have abandoned soccer stadiums in the middle of the jungle that no one's ever going to use again. I'm I'm saying a, a practical, real life, we're really committed to this as opposed to just saying we're committed to the infrastructure and building the community. Right. Well, that's always the, that's always the issue. Can you trust a bid at the beginning when they say that, when they say, hey, we really need this, we're building it for the games and, and, and that's what we're doing. Um, you know, sometimes it turns out that way and obviously many times have we seen it, it doesn't. Um, you know, in this case, if, if there's good intentions behind uh, the Hamilton project, I think it will work out well. And, I, and, I, and, you know, really what it comes down to is, is this public money or private money going into it? If it's private money, I take it a lot more seriously. That is Robert Livingston. Uh, you can find him at um, uh, gamesbids.com. I had to remember the name for a second there. Gamesbids.com. Go look up. It is a really cool website. There's a lot of stuff there, especially with Hamilton now for some time in the mix. If you want some latest information and some background and all the rest, that's, it's a really good place to go look. Uh, Robert, listen, always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Well, thank you too. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Beautiful outside today. Warm and sunny. Just a gorgeous late summer afternoon, late September afternoon, which of course followed just deluges of rain last week torrential rain i mean my pool is almost overflowing now from all the rain and that's kind of been the pattern this summer which might explain why my lawn that usually stops growing or at least slows down in late august is now needing to be cut twice a week still and growing like crazy that's all just leading into the next thing because i i saw my next guest post something on instagram which got me thinking because she works in the wine industry has this summer's really hot and then really wet 
and then really hot and wet, hot, wet. Has this summer been great or terrible for grape growing? And will it mean that we are going to have a brilliant vintage of wines from this area? Or is this going to be a mm, not so great year? I want to bring in Britt Dixon. She is she knows her way around a bottle of wine in, in the best possible way. Britt, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I don't know how you say that and not make it sound like it's a problem, but it's not a problem. You just know your way around a bottle of wine. That's, you know, it's a good thing. Educating others about our great Ontario wine. That's what I like that, to say. Just that's a much it, better right? way. That's a much better way than I said it. Um, okay, so let, let's look at this. Is is this going to be great, what we've gone through this summer? Um, or do wines like a different kind of climate than we've been having over the last number of months? So I think if we look at this whole growing season, like especially in those make or break months, which is, of course, like June, July, August, um, this year's grape harvest started earlier than, than an average year because we had a hot growing season through the summer. There was perfectly timed rainfalls. Everything, you know, looks like it was going really great. We had that heat wave at the end of August, which sped up the ripening process for the grapes. And then like right at the beginning of September, many growers started picking grapes for sparkling wine. So they were picking earlier than normal. One winery, it was like their earliest pick in like 20 years. Um, so picking sparkling grapes, but, you know, despite what happens through through the summer and the and the whole growing season, which of course is like months and months, it usually always comes down to September's weather. And, you know, it started off really promising, but of course the wet weather that we've seen recently can cause some challenges. Um, what that like heavy rainfall does and a lot of wet weather can do is cause some of the sugar levels in the grapes to drop. Um, of course, our wine grapes have to have like a perfect balance between the fruit sugars and acids. Um, if things get too wet and they don't dry out enough with like not enough airflow and not enough sun and heat, then uh, we could see like some rotting issues in terms of the grapes. Um, and even when you think about like the wet fields, right, like those big harvesters, those are heavy. They're driving through wet, wet farmers fields or whatever. So if the ground is all um, muddy and soft, then that's not ideal either. But I think what we have to think about is like it is farming. It's it's always up to Mother Nature. So our growers here in Ontario, we're in a place that's challenging to grow grapes at the best of times with extreme heat or extreme cold through the winter months. Um, our growers like really know what they're doing, and they kind of have learned how to adapt and how to how to deal with the, any sort of challenges that Mother Nature throws at them. And harvest will go through until the end of next month. So I think a lot of them are thinking. Right now, you know, it's it's a little bit challenging. They're seeing great flavors because of all that heat. Probably hoping that the rain will stop for now or at least uh, slow down, none of that torrential rain pour. Um, but, you know, we'll see through October what happens. And, uh, you know, maybe it will be beautiful and sunny and then, and then we'll have a great vintage. But I think, like, regardless of what happens, we're still going to have some really fantastic wines. It's just the growers and, and winemakers will have uh, – some more challenges to deal with and some, you know, sleepless nights over the next mm. little while worrying about sort of what the weather is doing and watching the weather to know when that perfect time to pick is. Let, let's talk about the three things. I mean, soil is a factor and all these kind of things. That's not a factor though, that is year by year, presumably that's a co constant. So let's very quickly go mm -hmm. through the three things that really affect this that are out of their control a little bit. Does temperature, does a super hot summer impact mm -hmm. a grape? Yeah, so the, the hot weather is fantastic because it's the heat that concentrates those sugars and those flavors in the in the wine. So if we look at like last year's vintage, the 2020 vintage was one of the best that growers and winemakers have seen in years. Like if not the best, it was hot, it was dry, we didn't have a lot of rainfall through harvest. So the grapes were full of those concentrated flavors. And then th that leads to some really great quality wines, especially those red wines. So Everyone okay. still is talking about that 2020 vintage. You know, the challenging year that 2020 was, we'll have some fantastic wines coming out of that. And I think up until the last couple of, you know, weeks before we saw all that heavy rain, we were we were up, out for like a banner year, just like 2020. So, you know, a little bit more wet now. So we'll have to see what happens throughout the, the rest of the harvest season. Okay, so the water, uh, you need obviously rain to grow grapes along with the temperature. Um, not enough and they don't, plump up not or mm -hmm. too much and they become diluted right yeah and it's really hard because 
you know, we, you don't want it to be super dry, but if it is super dry, you can irrigate, you know, you can go through with watering machines if you've ever been to wine country and, um, you know, driven past the vineyards in the summer when it's super hot and dry, you often see the, the machine sort of going through spraying water and irrigating it. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit more uh, under your control than, than having it too wet. And the third one would be sunlight, which, uh, you know, it may sound like it's part of temperature, but it's different because it could be sunlight, but cool. Does sunlight actually play a role in the grapes? Yeah. And you, so you want to have a, a perfect amount of sunlight and also airflow to make sure that the grapes are seeing the sun and that there's not. Um, so in like the, the early summer, the um, vineyard crews will go through and they'll remove some of that canopy, some of the grape vines that you see on the top that are like big and leafy. They'll remove some of them so that um, enough of the sunlight can penetrate those grapes because the grapes sort of hang all along the bottom. So there's a lot of work that goes into making sure those vines are just in that perfect state for the right amount of sunlight, the right amount of airflow. And then they'll even remove some of the extra bunches of grapes to make sure that, you know, the ones that are left on there are still getting um, the, the best amount of um, nutrients from the soil and, you know, like kind of that quality control, right? You get rid of some to make sure the others really thrive. So do we, I mean, again, it sounds like we've had a lot of things that are really good, maybe too much water at times, but do we really know what kind of vintage we're going to have of wine until the finished product can be sipped? I mean, is it possible to really anticipate or is it always just we have to wait until a bottle is popped open and we can taste it? I think growers can definitely anticipate it as they're um, going through because what they'll do is this time of year, they'll be going through their vineyards, they'll be picking the grapes, they'll be like eating the grapes, tasting them, checking out those flavors and they it's amazing like the the knowledge and skills that they have because they know just by tasting them whether the sugar levels are right you know they can do like a chemical analysis to make sure the sugars and bricks are at the right levels but a lot of it is based on taste and that and that sort of like farming instinct so a lot of the times they'll know when the juice is coming through when the grapes are being harvested and they'll, and they're being pressed you know you get all those amazing uh flavors and and things like that so they'll see those bunches so they'll know whether it's going to be um, a good year. Uh, but, you know, 2018 was another challenging year. We had like a super hot, dry summer and then a ton of rain uh, during September and during those those harvest months. And, you know, we, we're drinking those 2018 wines now and they're they're still fantastic. So I'm not worried. <laughs> so just before we let you go, if we have, if it turns out that this is a great year, if it's a great year, does this automatically mean that prices are going to go up? Do the vineyards, when, when they when they know that it's a great year, does everything become more expensive because it's so good? No, I don't think so. I think it all depends on sort of, um, you know, you still want to make your wine accessible. You want people to be able to, to buy it and you don't want to see a huge price jump um, from one vintage to the next. Um, but, a, but a lot of what you might see, like for that 2020 year, that was really fantastic. Maybe some of those red wines that are higher quality might be um, destined more for those like reserve bottles of wine. So maybe a little bit more um, time spent in oak or, or aged a little bit longer. Um, and then you could see a little bit, you know, those, those bottles tend to be a little bit more pricey depending on the, the investment that the winemakers are make within the process of making those bottles. Britt Dixon, you can uh, find her on Instagram. She does amazing stuff on there. She is just all, all over this. And, and as I say, how did you describe it again? I don't want to say you know your way around a bottle again. That's <laughs> <laughs> Educating people about Ontario wine. <laughs> there you go. There is Britt Dixon educating us as well. Britt, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the aforementioned Don Robertson, owner and operator of ComChoice Realty of the Dundas Real McCoys, who are actually getting very close to playing this year, it would seem, there, since there's hockey again. Um, Citizen of the Year in Dundas in 2014, and if we have anything to do with it, in 2021. Sir, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am fantastic. I am uh, just thinking of the, the things that on National Day of Forgiveness that I should be you should be forgiving me or I should be forgiving you for, but I, we'll, we'll figure that out. We'll probably say something over the course of the show that will need immediate forgiveness one way or the other. So uh, I'm, I'm sure if you said something that offended me or needs forgiveness, I responded immediately. I'm not one to harbor those things. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, um, and, and one of the things that I've learned over the years is, uh, 
that uh, the the number of things that offend me has become much much smaller as my skin has become a little bit thicker or a lot thicker. It's just not Age to me. Too. It's not worth getting bent out of shape about most things. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I just uh, this is not what we're going to be talking about. But when I go on social media and everybody is upset about everything and everybody's offended by everything. All I can think is how do you go through life that bent out of shape about so many things all at once and every day something is upsetting you? I just, I don't know how you live like that. Every day. There are people on Twitter that I follow that I just want to put in caps. Say something positive and you have two months to do it. Just (laughs) one day. And I know I'd stymie them because they could find fault in anything. Oh yeah. I oh, yeah. I don't understand. I don't get the logic of that. Like talking about cup half empty. Some of those cups are empty. There was a uh, a person whose name will I will not mention, but someone we knew well, my my family, and we used to joke that they were never happy unless they were unhappy. They had to be angry about something. It seemed to be able to feel something. So they would look for the things that would get them cranky because that would give them something to do with their day, it seemed. They just, they couldn't be okay if there was nothing bugging them. Yeah. And I think there's a few people awful, like that out there. It's an awful way to have to live your life, but and there's far too many of them. I, I feel bad for them because it's, it's just not healthy. All right, well, one of those groups of people, now it won't be quite the way this is, but um, you probably heard that the Maple Leafs were the subject of a behind-the-scenes series that was going to be shown. It's coming up on... Uh, Friday or Saturday, August, October the 1st is when this Leafs show on Amazon Prime comes out, Don. And it's a, you know, it's, it's along the lines of what we saw back with the outdoor game when they did the thing with Washington and Pittsburgh or whatever else. Is this something that you would, you would watch or, or have we seen enough stuff behind the scenes that you go, I've seen behind the scenes hockey stuff. I don't need to see anymore. Well, as you can appreciate, I've seen more than my share behind the scenes yes. and, um, a lot of it, which should remain behind the scenes, <laughs> as we talked about a couple of shows ago. <laughs> but um, I think I would have the interest, Scott, to watch how they handle it, because it will not be a true and a pure uh, description of what really goes on in the dressing room, because some of that they can't air. The guys know the cameras are there. So some of the shenanigans and some of the things that would said will be you know, we'll be tempered a little bit, but I think for a big Leaf fan to see what goes on in some of the conversations, uh, the frankness in, with the coaches and general manager will not be as pure as um, it, it probably really is because they know there's a good chance this is going to be on, um, um, you know, national TV and if they say the truth, they could lose the player. <laughs> like, you know, if a guy has a couple of bad games, I mean, the conversations aren't all that pleasant. So I, I'm trying to critique it without seeing it, but I just can't believe it's a hundred percent authentic, but it will be a great uh, opportunity for people to actually see what goes on in the dressing room. And if you've never been in those environments, I'm sure it'll be enjoyable watching. One of the things that, so some of the, some media have had pre, they've been able to review it. They've had previews of it. And one of the things that I think might be the exception to your rule, which I probably, I I tend to agree with about, you know, everyone's going to be a little guarded. Apparently at the end, when the Leafs lost in game seven to Montreal, apparently Jack Campbell, the goalie for the Leafs is sitting in his stall, sobbing and crying, which I don't think that's guarded nor made up and you look at that and you go you know i agree with what you're saying don that you know you're always going to be a little bit careful because you don't want to say the wrong thing but those kind of things those are the moments that i think an awful lot of leaf fans if that's in fact what happens and if that's not a misspeak or something i think a lot of leaf fans not that they want to see a grown man cry but would appreciate that because it looks like they care as much as the fans do yeah, I, I think that would be pretty authentic. I, that's not really the stuff I was talking about that wouldn't be real. No. I mean, those things will be real. Finding out about an injury that's going to put you out for a couple months, you know, that kind of stuff would be real. 
I remember back, and I don't. Uh, I was actually at the game in Carolina when the Edmonton Oilers got beat out in seven games. And it was a picture the next day in the paper of Pod Harvey, who uh, grew up in Sheffield and Rockton and played a little bit for the Dundas Real McCoys after his retirement, and he was gracious enough to do that. There was a picture of him with a Pepsi. It's the only time I've ever seen him have a Pepsi. Um, I don't know if he was sobbing or not, but the it wasn't just the... Uh, I, I, I asked him about the picture. And I said, "What's up with that picture?" He says, "Nobody knew the, nobody knew what I knew. That was my last NHL game. That he was retiring after that game, and he just got beat out in Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals. So, if, you know, when he knows that's it, that's a bit. He, you know, when you see that, that's raw emotion. I mean, he he knows. Nobody else knows. So those those types of things are really real, and I'm sure." If, that's what Jack Campbell did. Then Jack Campbell is probably the, one of the smartest guys on the Leaf team because he recognizes the fact that you only get so many opportunities to do well in the playoffs. And young guys, like the Oilers did, have to learn so they can have to lose to learn how to win. And Campbell's probably going, this might be the best chance I've ever had to win a Stanley Cup with this group when we get beat out in the first round. That would that would I, make you cry. I wish, and I don't think I've heard nothing to suggest that this is happening. I wish that the Leafs were doing this again this year because, you know, the the only that I can think of the only sequel that was ever better than the original was The Godfather Two, better than The Godfather. The sequel to what happened with the Leafs and the pressure on this team and the everything going on, I think it would be unbelievably interesting to see even somewhat guarded at times to see how this team behind the scenes deals with all this stuff. Because Don, here's the other thing. I talked to a guy some years ago, years and years ago who had been on survivor and we got talking about, you know, being on that show and, and, one of the things he says is, yeah, at the beginning, you're really, really aware of the cameras. Like they're everywhere and they, it's all you can think of. You got to choose your words carefully. But after a while, you know what? You sometimes say some things that you're just not, you're just not being as careful because they've kind of blended into the background a little bit. And I would be fascinated to see as this season goes on with the pressure that's on this team, when guys let their guard down just a little bit to see, you know, they always say, we don't listen to the outside. I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that for a second. I'd love to see how they're, how they deal with that stuff. I love coaches that say, I don't read the newspapers. Bull. What a crock. They read them every day. Cause you know what? They got lots of time. <clears throat> you know, they're playing three games a week and they got three other days or practice and watching video. They got lots of time. They read it. They know what Scott Radley wrote about them. They know everything. It, just a load of baloney that they don't you know what to be <clears throat> you know what i think could sell scott quite frankly is because they're the toronto maple leafs they could probably do this every year and sell it oh sure on a subscription I, basis just you, you want you pay us you know instead of amazon prime it's going to cost you 200 bucks at the end of the year they would get thousands of people who would pay for that five or six part series thousands they sure i mean look at the look at the subscriptions they had to leave tv which i i don't even know if it's still on anymore they charged extra i bought it because they had marley games on and they had other hockey that i was interested in but they but they sold that and 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 when john shannon was there they had a big production company and i don't know if they still do but i wouldn't surprise me that they do so I like I'm saying they may not have to do the grand production that that uh, that Amazon Prime has probably done, but they could do you know I'm not talking about doing it on your iPhone, but they could do that and sell it. I mean every year the Montreal Canadiens could, the Edmonton Oilers could, uh, the bigger teams. You know the Oilers got a, a smaller group of fans at this point, but you know Montreal, Toronto, New York Rangers. There are a few teams that could send sell that behind the scenes stuff and the insider stuff, but just watching the guys work out and watch their training regiments and 
you know, a lot of a lot of coaches would say, you know, we should watch this. Look at how hard these guys work. It's a teaching moment. I think they can do it every year, and I haven't seen it. And I will probably watch some of it because we must be able to get Amazon Prime because there's been more Amazon trucks come to our house in the last 19 months than I've come to my house in the last 19 months. (laughs) But we must be able to subscribe to that. I'm sure Suze has that. I'm sure we're... I'm sure, if not, they'll just give us a gold package. I mean, I'm telling you, I think she's won the actual world championship for Amazon buying. <laughs> well, the other thing that they don't do yet, and I'm kind of surprised because look, every team is trying to find every single way to monetize everything. Why do you even need to have it as a end of year customized, built, edited process? I mean, theoretically, you could probably sell a package to watch every leaf practice on your computer, just have a live camera going or cameras going there. And, you know, 10 minutes in the dressing room after practice is over or whatever. And you could probably sell almost anything. And there would be people who would be lining up to pay for it, no matter how interesting or not interesting it was, just because you say it's behind the scenes and exclusive access. Uh, Easily you could do that. Well, I can tell you on a smaller scale, the teams in the U.S. and the old Colonial League, Flint and Muskegon and so on, they and Detroit, they sold the rights to their um, warm-up jerseys to people. Yeah. Because the crowd was there and they wouldn't wear. And, and that's that's not exactly the National Hockey League. That, that's pretty low level. But it, they probably sold them for enough money to pay for all their uniforms every year. I mean, so if there's a market for that, for sure. I mean, do you know what the Leaf practice jerseys, the front of the Leaf practice jerseys would be worth on the market? I mean, they sell everything. I mean, they, if they can sell the sleeve, and I don't mean the side of the shirt, just the sleeve, the little little part that goes around the bottom, they'd sell it and people buy it. So you're right. They could they could do it on they could do it on a daily basis inside the Leafs on a daily basis. Well, they kind of did that with Leaf TV. Yeah, although it was never really, uh, they tried to say it was behind the scenes, but it never really was. But again, I mean, I think that if you were to to offer something that suggested, and the way you would have to do it is you'd have to allow some stuff to get through that maybe some of the players or coaches wouldn't love just to make it more sellable. You'd have to, there'd have to be this belief that you were really seeing something that they didn't want you to see. And, but I think you could sell it. And I think that this Leafs on Amazon thing, I think there's going to be an awful lot of people in this area who suddenly are going to be subscribing to Amazon Prime for about three days as part of the free free trial just to watch this whole thing and then away you go. But uh, yeah. and then and then if this works, been, then the Dundas Real McCoys, McCoys will have their season on you know behind the scenes. So I really didn't want you to tip that off, but we we're, we're in discussions with uh, TSN and Sportsnet right now. But I'll let you know how that works out. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the things that kind of quietly the NHL has decided to do this year, and I think it's probably not surprising why they did it, but they have decided to crack down on cross-checking this year. So if you're a defenseman in front of the net and you blast a guy across the back to you know move him out of the way, or I guess in the corner if you want to give him a shove with your stick, theoretically that's going to be a penalty this year. You like the idea, or or is it just adding another thing to take more things out of the game and make more penalties and more power plays? Well, I don't think they're trying trying to um, create more power plays. I think they're trying to protect the athletes from getting pummeled. Um, oh, I just had his name on the tip of my tongue. Who's that great big stud in Montreal? The Pounds guys. They traded for PJ uh, Shea, Shea Weber. Shea Weber. Shea Weber. Like, yeah. If the, if that guy hit you or I like he hit some of those guys in the playoffs, we'd be in a wheelchair for you know not, not a long time, eight ten years. <clears throat> I think I think what the NHL have to do is decide how they want to implement the rule book because when I refereed and I don't think the rule's been changed, the definition of a high sticking penalty is any player that carries a stick above the height of the shoulders. Well, that means if I go around you with my stick over my head so I don't hit you in the head with it, that's a high-sticking penalty. So 
really what should be done is, is the rule book should be examined and perhaps rewritten to bring it into the, you know, 2021 standards instead of the 1950 standards. So, so I find, always find it funny that the National Hockey League have actually decided this year they're going to call cross-checking when you cross-check someone. Does that not seem odd to someone that they're going to say, we're going to call it as it applies in the rule book? So what about the other penalties in the rule book? Mm. So why don't they re-examine everything and decide how they'll be implemented and the standard in which they will be um, um, governed? Because really it's a governance issue, right? So it's just on ice in the fastest game in the world outside of uh, maybe horse racing and cars. But, you know, as a, as a single athlete, kind of a, it's a pretty fast game. So is high sticking different? I mean, if how many times do we see each, a couple of guys swat each other in the mouth with their gloves? And the referee, referees determine that's not roughing. So for them to have to actually talk about, like it was a number of years ago when they said, we're going to get rid of hooking in the neutral zone and all over the ice. So when the Boston Bruins were doing very well back in the 70s, you could actually hook your stick around a guy's gut and then have him tow you up the ice, which was hooking or interference. So, But it wasn't then. Needed, it wasn't then. And it, well, it was always hooking, but it wasn't called. Right. So it was always hooking, but not called. So what they should do is have a bunch of guys, maybe even me, because I could figure it out pretty quickly, but have a bunch of experts sit down and define the rules they want called and how they will be called rather than have to say, so we're going to call cross-checking this year. Really? It was okay not to call it for 45 years, but this year we're calling cross-checking. So they should just take a look at the whole project, see what they want called, see how they want it implemented. So the players, coaches, fans, and more importantly, the referees know how it should be implemented because the referees are always the one that take the crap because you're going, really, that wasn't cross-checking? Well, yeah, it was, but it, you know, you didn't break a rib, so we're not supposed to call it. That's your point is, fix it. Don, your point is true because look, in, in the, in recent years when people have argued for new rules, uh, I've said the same thing as you, the, the rule already exists. You don't need a new rule. You just need to call the rules that you already have when they wanted to stop, as you say, the interference through the neutral zone and all the rest. Just call the rules that are already there. Every every rule, and this is almost to the point of silliness, but every conceivable thing that you could imagine is already in the rule book. I mean, the NHL rule book is now a an encyclopedic document. It's not like the old days when it was 15 pages long. I mean, it is a long, long document with every conceivable permeation and combination of what could possibly happen. Permutation and combination, pardon me. Got to use the right phrase. Um, it's just, you're right. Just call what's there. Now, you're also right with the point that I think is really interesting. So if we're saying now that you have to call cross-checking by the book, why not... You know, icing, for example, you know, when a guy gets to center ice and fires the puck in from just behind the center line, well, sometimes he's not quite at center and sometimes he's just over center. But if you're going to call things exactly by the rule book, why should you not slow the replay down as soon as he does it? So the booth people can look and go, wait, call down to the ref. That's icing or the linesman. These are all... And, and and I don't want that because I don't want whistles endlessly. But again, your point is, and I think it's right. If we're going to call things by the book, call things by the book. And if we're not going to call things by the book and let the referee have some discretion, let the referee have some discretion. But it seems to make no sense that some things have to be called precisely and other things we have great leeway for. Well, and that, and that is where the coaches, me included, going... All right, Radley's in the building tonight, boys. He always calls this stuff, which is okay. But if you're going to implement the rules, implement a consistent interpretation of what you're going to call. That's my point, right? Like, if this is how you're going to call it, that's fine. If the, if the icing call is uh, dead on the center red line, fine. For years, it's kind of been like, remember, 
when baseball took out the, uh, you just kind of had to be in the neighborhood of dragging your foot near second base, and that was good enough, and they took that rule out and said, you know what, we're actually going to call it the way it's supposed to be called. You have to touch second base. You can't just be three or four inches away and make an effort to do it. All they did is implement the rule. And so in consultation with the players and everything else, we're going to say, here's the rule. Here's how we're going to call it. Here's what I was told as a 18 year old young guy starting refereeing in, in the OHA. The instructor said, so, cause some guy asked the question. So if it's, if the guy's got his back foot up and his inside foot is inside the line, is it offside? And the instructor said, it's, Son, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And I've never forgotten that. So if the center red line in the neighborhood call is, it's kind of close, I'll let it go. So it's a neighborhood call. You're either pregnant or you're not. It's either offside, icing, or it's not. You don't get the discretion to call it that way. On the icing in the old days, uh, working in uh, the OHL, um, at that point in time, just as a linesman, uh, if it was 6-1, there were no icings. Ten minutes ago in the third period, it didn't matter what happened. If it was a slap shot straight down the ice, you waved it off because everybody wanted to go home. The game was over. So you have to determine where the leeway is and how you want to implement the rules. So if you want to call uh, cross checking, if you want to call interference, let everybody know the interpretation, including the fans, so they understand what it is. When you change things, and now they're publicly saying we're going to call cross-checking. Sure, let everybody know so they're not going, boy, the guy cross-checked the guy, and you didn't make a call. <clears throat> Pardon me. Just make it consistent so everybody knows. Nobody cares what the rules are as long as you call them consistently. Well, we or, them yeah, consistent, consistently or at least call them against the other team, the visiting team, and don't call them against us. <laughs> That's that's the consistency people really want. Make sure that they get the penalty for the thing that we that you say you're going to do and that we don't. But yeah, I I, well, I, I don't know how. I was on refereeing, refereeing Scott. When I was refereeing a lot of hockey, I always found it very beneficial to do it that way for the home team and not the visiting team. It was always a lot safer to walk through the lobby to go to your car. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting because, uh, as you say, there's lots of rules that have lots of leeway. And and look, when the NHL put in, I'm trying to think of the, there's been two times, now there's been more than this, but two immediately come to mind as we talk, where the NHL said, we are following the letter of the law. One of them was on offsides about the foot. And so how many times did we see in recent years until they changed it again, it slowed down and zoomed in to see if the guy's skate was one hair offside. It was just it seemed like that's not following the letter of the law and giving the linesman no discretion. And the other one was that stupid rule back in the '90s with the toe in the crease that cost the Buffalo partially cost the Buffalo Sabers a Stanley Cup with Brett Hull. And how many goals got waved off because somebody was not affecting things at all? But we had to call the letter of the law. And I just I look at this and I think. I I much would prefer even more than this cross-check. You can put a point of emphasis on the cross-checking, but if you really want to fix hockey officiating, I would go back to either one official on the ice so you don't have two guys with two different standards, or if you really want to get everything, one official on the ice and one official in the stands with a different view, a bird's-eye view that can blow a whistle from up in the stands to catch the trip back behind the play or whatever else. But I, I, I'm not sure that that's the kind of hockey we want to watch with a million penalties and a million stoppages. Well, they have they have to determine how they want it called. Let everybody know so everybody knows what the referees are instructed to do. And I'm going to tell you, I we have an officiating shortage in the Ontario Hockey Association. I've been appointed uh, appointed to the board of directors, and it's a real issue. Uh, with vaccinations and all kinds of different things. And the junior A's and the junior B's are going to be living with a three-man system, meaning one referee and two linesmen. But I'm here to tell you that is a difficult way to officiate. I mean, when I officiated at that level, I could do it. First of all, I could, I, I could skate well. 
but there was no, there was no, there was a center red line. There was no two line. There was still a two line pass, but with no two line pass, there isn't a guy on the planet that can referee a three man system with only one referee on the ice in the National Hockey League. The game is too fast. These guys, the referee would be spent standing on the face off dot and with a scramble around the net or on the goal line. Defenseman picks it up and fires it up to a kid like Mitch Marner at the far blue line. The referee isn't, he hasn't even started his engine yet. Marner's got a shot in net. So going back to a three-man system, which I absolutely love, cannot work because there isn't a guy on the planet that can skate fast enough. So maybe having an eye in the sky, I don't know. That's a little crazy. I'd rather have of course more guys is. out there. But, but yeah, of course uh, you're it right. Is, but it they, just... When you say you're going to call it to the letter of the law, at least let everybody know what the letter of the law means. Right, right. And I don't care right. if it's the NFL or the strike zone in baseball, which, which they bring up on um, uh, the screen all the time. Baseball is one of the things I thought we're talking about, but I am, I guess. Baseball is one of the things that if it's either in, it's either in that square during a Jays game or it's not. It's not in that square. It's not a strike. That's not the way it is in, in Major League Baseball. If Scott Radley's uh, refereeing or uh, umpiring tonight, we know what his strike zone is. Don Robertson's doing tomorrow night's game. Okay, we know what it, we know what his strike zone is, and they're not consistent and they're not the same. So you have to decide how you want to officiate games. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joined by Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys and other places. Probably have his back porch right now, which is the more the more important thing. Uh, Don, there is uh, <laughs> there exactly are stories. Where I, am. I, I, I thought that might be. Hey, why wouldn't you be on a night like tonight? There are stories that the Tampa Bay Rays are going to be splitting time now. And this has been going on for some time, but that they are this is really going to happen. The Tampa Bay Rays are going to be splitting time, partly as Tampa's team and partly as Montreal's team. Let me read something. Um, there was a comment in the Journal de Montréal with St. Petersburg Mayor Rick Kreisman saying the team was in favor of splitting the season in Montreal. Quote, the Rays are really interested in playing the start of the season here in St. Petersburg and the rest of the campaign in Montreal. They're seriously considering this option. You think that could work for, for either Tam? I think for Montreal, there might be interest for a while because it's new and it's exciting and a team is back. But do you think that a, a team could survive... In any sport, playing a season half in one city and half in another, so both, I suppose, could feel ownership and neither feels ownership? I don't know. You have an easier question. Here's what I think will come from it. Uh, I think, first of all, here's what I would do. If they're going to sell half the ownership, I think it's a Bronfman family that wants to buy it. Yep. And um, I think if they split it, the way to assess it is whoever has the largest attendance should have the playoff games. And so you kind of capitalize on it there. But if it seems like they both need new stadiums, right? So Tampa need something that's a little more, it's a little bit smaller. Everybody seems to like the Boston model where the, you know, you can't put 50,000 people in, but you can put, 32,000 in, and we all know if you can only have 32,000, they're going to pay more for tickets. Their average ticket price is going to work out to be the same as 55 in all likelihood, except for special events. <clears throat> what it might do, I don't know if Montreal would be prepared to build a new stadium to split a season, but what it might do for Montreal, and it might do for Tampa, more likely Montreal, is prove that they can host a major league baseball team. I think it's a clever move by the Montreal uh, group and they wouldn't be called the Expos to say, look at, we can fill our stadium 30, you know, 35 seat thousand seat stadium for um, 32 games, 31 games, which I guess would be half the regular season, right? Or whatever, whatever they decide to do. I think it would then be proof to major league baseball and everybody else that they deserve an expansion franchise and that's what might come out of it, and that's what might win the day for Montreal to be able to be called the Expos again with their own franchise. It's yeah. it's been it's been tried before, I think, in Major League Sports with limited su- success. 
Buffalo Sabres playing or Buffalo Bills playing a few games in Toronto and Rogers paying an exorbitant amount of money to do it and not working out financially. But I don't know if there's been a true split. I think there was in hockey and it didn't work out well, but I think it could end up being um, the end result could be Scott that Montreal could prove themselves as a major league baseball city again, and they would get an expansion of franchise or be able to buy a team. Yeah, some uh, some very clever person said because it's the Expos and the Rays that uh, when they combine them, they'll be the X-Rays, which, <laughs> which probably cool. is as, as good a name as any. I, I, I just, I don't know that anyone can win out of this, and, and I wish they could. I mean, I would love for baseball to come back to Montreal, but I don't know that Montreal fans, again, after the after the initial excitement, because we see when the, when the Jays do their annual two-game series in Montreal. I don't know if they did it this year in the spring training, but nonetheless, when they do their annual trip to Montreal, they always sell out the Big Oaks. It's a, it's a it's an event. But I don't know if Montreal is going to support a team half the year that's not their team, really. And we've seen that Tampa's not going to support a team. That, that's been going on for a long time now. And so, does you know, at the end of this, does either one look good? Does either one look well, like they can host a franchise? And I, I don't know what the answer to that would be. Well, it's not like it's not like Tampa Bay don't have a great team. I mean, they're almost they always like do Billy Ball, but they're almost like Billy Ball, right? They do a really great job on a lower salary, and so they do a great job of running their franchise. <clears throat> Here would be a question, and I don't know enough about it, but I still have an opinion on it, not knowing much about it. Um, the Montreal Expos—they have a language law there, so would the outfield? Um, advertising and the advertising in the stadium have to be only in French and would that cause a concern if they have we talked about Amazon earlier if Amazon I don't, I don't know how you write Amazon or French but uh, would that be an issue would the language law in Quebec be an issue for Major League Baseball because they can't put signs up in English well, you would, I would assume that you would be selling advertising for the Montreal part of the season and advertising for the Tampa part of the season and Montreal would only be selling things that they could put up there. I don't think that there would necessarily be a, a crossover and most teams, either way, most teams, if it's a proper name, there's no French or English. Amazon is Amazon. You could put that up or, you know, we talked the other day about Tim Horton's doesn't have an apostrophe in the between the N and the S like it should grammatically because then it can go up as Tim Hortons in Quebec and, and be the same thing. So I don't I don't I don't know that would do anything. I just I would love for baseball to work again in Montreal. I just I don't know if a half measure does it, but you know what? Keep an eye out for that. Uh, Don, we got to run. Unfortunately, I wish we had a lot more time, but uh, that is Don Robertson. Uh, he is here every Monday from seven till eight. Always appreciate you taking the time, Don. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. It's great night. Great night on the deck too. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.